a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Now, if you're ready for some uh, top-shelf wrong think, you have definitely come to the right place. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos joins me. Eric, how are you this fine day? Well, I'm good. I'm ready to reach for the rock gut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, I, I have to say, though, every time you and I get a chance to catch up each week, um, the world seems just a little more normal, or at least the craziness is a little more bearable. And I, I appreciate your rational point of view, and and I appreciate your, uh, your wit as well. Well, thank you. So, let's talk about Goldilocks. Yeah, the Goldilocks zone. It's another example of uh, rationality and, and uh, sanity beginning to kind of leak out again. Um, we found out last winter uh, that electric cars don't do so well when it's cold, that uh, the range that they tout can sometimes be reduced by almost half, uh, depending on how cold it gets, and that it takes much longer to charge because batteries just don't do well in very cold weather. Now we're finding out Automotive News, which is the industry uh, one of the industry uh, trade mags, uh, has published some data about how hot weather is doing the same thing, that when it's very hot outside, batteries, again, lose performance. And part of the reason for that is that most of the time people are going to be running things like the air conditioner when it's 90 degrees outside, and that results in a significant efficiency loss. And again, people are becoming, <laughs> becoming aware of these problems, and I think it accounts for the fact uh, that these inventories, inventories of electric vehicles are stacking up all over the country because uh, people don't want to buy them. You know, they, they you know, fool me once, uh, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. People are getting hip, and, I, and I'm just very glad to see this happening. I, you know, every time we talk about EVs, I become a little more certain that uh, I'm, I'm doing the right thing by not wanting to jump into one. Kind of like, you know, every, every time I hear more, uh, more reports about died suddenly, I realize, you know, I, I've never had a regret that I didn't take the vax. Mm-hmm. Now, and keep in mind, too, that the majority of EVs, the ones that are, quote-unquote, mass market, meaning the ones that cost around $50,000, they typically have ranges around 240 to 280 or so miles. That's what they come standard with. So if you lose 30%, and you know, the automotive news quotes a study that indicates that happens fairly commonly in the heat, and I can vouch for it happening in the cold, uh, you know, now you're down to about 200 miles. That's pretty bad. And then factor in that you probably are going to want to keep a reserve on tap because an electric car is not like a non-electric car that you can run down to empty, and you can just kind of roll the thing into the next gas station down the road, and you can be back on the road. If you, if you run out of charge, you're going to be stuck where you are, including at a fast charging station where you'll be sitting for a half hour, 45 minutes or longer just to get going again. So it's kind of a just a serial and compounding problem. You know, I've, I've gone the route of a, a very limited range vehicle with a dedicated CNG Honda that I used to have. Mm-hmm. And I mean, on the one hand, it was okay. If I was going a certain direction, anywhere from Salt Lake City down to the West Coast, you could find CNG filling stations, sometimes with difficulty, yeah. but you could always find them. Anywhere north of there, though, was sketchy at best. And there, there is yep. nothing that sucks like realizing, okay, I'm down to a quarter tank, and I don't know where the next fill-up is coming from. Sure. 
you know, and what if something comes up? You know, it's all well and good to plan out your route. Okay, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to stop at the fast charger after lunch. But what if something comes up before then? What if you need to be somewhere else? You know, what if your kid is sick and, you know, you have to jump in your car uh, and, and, and get someplace right now? Well, you can't do that with the electric car. Uh, you know, and it's something, again, that people are beginning to get hip to. And they're realizing how this is going to just impact their daily lives and, and limit their ability to just spontaneously do what they need to do and go where they need to go. Well, and there's there's another factor, and I know we were, we were going to touch on this in the next segment, but I, I kind of want to jump to this. Those electric cars, mm-hmm. fancy and amazing and as many gadgets and bells and whistles as they have, also have a tendency to keep tabs on you. And maybe that's not such a good thing. No, it's a terrible thing. And, you know, they are all, to use the, the word, connected, all of them, meaning that they send and receive data. A lot of people don't realize this, that uh, the, the car is being used not only to keep track of them, but to mine them and to monetize them. One of the most appalling things about our time uh, is that we have been turned into commodities. You buy a car, ostensibly it's your property, and this car is collecting data about you. And then another party, whether it's a car manufacturer or whoever, has access to and then monetizes that data about you because it's valuable. They want to know what, you know, what your preferences are. They want to know where you like to eat. They want to know what gas stations you go to and, and so on and so on. And they sell that data and make money off of it. And you don't even get a rebate, rebate coupon in the mail for it. Yeah, it, it seems like they're – well, I'll give you an example. Even our devices in our homes are listening. I, I had asked my, my mm-hmm. kids we, – we had heard somebody reference uh, Pearl Jam and their song Jeremy yep. and the video. And I asked my son, hey, have you ever seen that video? No. No, okay. Well, I said, pull up YouTube on our, our television, and, and I'll show you. And he pulled up YouTube, hit the search feature, and guess what word is there? Jeremy. And I'm like, of course. Whoa, okay, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, Alexa is always listening, even when she's off. And by the way, uh, the same is true in cars. A number of them, Toyotas, for example, several new Toyota models have Alexa built in. And even those that don't, all of them, all the new cars have microphones in them, they also have cameras in them. So not only can they listen in, they can view in. Potentially, you know, it's not, not uh, necessarily the fact that somebody's watching you while you're driving, but the fact is the technology is embedded and it could be used for that purpose. Well, you know, as long as it's possible, and I don't know how much longer that's going to be, I'll stick with that internal combustion engine and, uh, you know, whatever the climate, uh, you know, hysterics are saying, um, I guess that's really not relevant to me because... Uh, you know, I have a life to live. Correct. Absolutely. And I really do believe that if enough of us will simply say no, all of this will stop. Uh, you know, the thing that happened with Bud Light is a case in point. Uh, it took uh, all it took was for uh, probably several million individuals on their own to say, you know, I'm disgusted by this. I, I'm not going to buy their product anymore. And those millions of individuals collectively added up to a tsunami. And Bud Light has been destroyed in Anheuser-Busch. Uh, is reeling as a result of that. So I think it's important to remember that while we can sometimes, we often sometimes feel isolated as individuals and feel that our vote doesn't matter, we have no voice, we do. We just have to be willing to exercise it. Well, and I think with hindsight, you know, now I think a lot of us realize if we had stood up sooner, if we had said no to the masks sooner, no to the jab, no to the lockdowns, you know, it never would have gone as far as it did. And, of course, maybe you've seen uh, now there's the, the World Health Organization is out there testing. Ah, there's a new variant out there that, uh, you course. know, you better be scared. Of course. You know, hopefully uh, the fact that the boy is crying wolf again will, will not 
resonate with the people again. And you're absolutely right uh, about standing up. I, you know, I maintained that from the beginning. I think if uh, if even 20 or 30 percent of the people had just refused to do it, it would have provided the example for the rest. And it would have been a, a case study because people who were scared, understandably, and who were wearing the mask would have looked and seen, well, you know, all these people are walking around without that thing on and they don't seem to be dropping like flies. So maybe something's wrong with what they're telling us. Yep. And thankfully, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that uh, you were consistently one of the voices of reason, a clarion voice out there saying, folks, don't buy into the fear. Can you not see that you're being manipulated mm-hmm. through fear? And sadly, a lot of ordinary people who otherwise are very decent folks turned on their neighbors, turned on their family members because they were under the influence of fear. Well, sure. And it is understandable. You know, I have great sympathy for them, at least initially, because it was unprecedented. I, you know, in my lifetime, at any rate, I can't recall a, a concerted campaign to terrorize the population that's even remotely comparable to, to what we've just been through. Can you? No, not in my lifetime. Yeah, so, I, you know, the next thing I suspect that they're going to try is to do the same thing, essentially the same tactics, but this time with the climate, because there's a crisis, you know, and they're probably going to try to have climate lockdowns and various other things because we've got to do it or else everybody's going to die. It's going to be the same old thing rebooted. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't watch television. I mean, I'll, I'll occasionally put something on Netflix or Hulu or something, but I don't watch network television, even local television. Once in a while, though, when I'm visiting my dear old mama, um, that's what she does. That's her window on the world. And I'm telling you, the the weather forecasts or the weather reports that they give, Eric, it's there. There's no such thing as you know green earth anywhere anymore. We live we live apparently in the fires of hell because that's what yeah. all the weather maps look like. Sure, you know you never hear about hey it's summer it's hot you know right. there's a heat wave. <laughs> <laughs> this has know, never it, happened it, before. It it never happened before. And, and you know, it, it, it is astounding because you'd think that people would have memories and think, gee, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, I remember summers being hot. Uh, <laughs> this isn't an aberrant, unusual, let alone scary or dangerous thing. Uh, somebody posted something on my site that was very interesting about uh, temperatures. And uh, indeed, July has been the hottest uh, on record uh, if you go back to 1913. Wow. I mean, you that know. was it was much hotter in July of 1913 than it is now. Well, thank goodness they're keeping records, you know, so we can yeah. uh, give more power and more money to people in in you know politics. Hold that thought, you know, Eric. We, we, we've okay. got to take a very quick break. Eric Peters from EricPetersAutos.com is my guest. By the way, there's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take you right to his website. You can spend some good time there. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. All right, Eric, glad to have you aboard. I wanted to uh, I wanted to, to just kind of get your take on the, the whole Fed Now program, which apparently has been rolled out as of last week. It's, it's underway. 35 um, institutions or banks have signed on. And uh, give me your gut feeling. Where, where is this headed? Well, where it's headed, I think we all know the answer to that, to central bank digital currency. And what they're trying to do is what they always do, which is to normalize something, to habituate people to it, to get them used to it before they expand it. That's There's so many instances of that, I don't think it really requires elaboration. They, they want people to think, oh, this is perfectly normal. 
This is reasonable. Uh, and then why not? You know, so that when they push it a little bit farther and it's no longer possible to not participate in digital federal money, uh, most people will just resign, sigh and say, yeah, I guess that's just fine. I'm used to paying for things with a QR code and swiping my, my palm print and showing my cell phone. And this is absolutely disastrous. This is this is it. You know, if they do succeed in doing this, it will mean that they can use finance uh, to suborn obedience. You know, if you know that if you uh, were to voice a contrarian opinion uh, or if you were to disobey a mask edict or any other edict that you will not be able to buy food, that your car might not work uh, and things of that nature, you know, what are you going to do? Most people won't have the fortitude to stand up to that. What this is, is the foundational thing uh, that they have in China to build a social credit system where you're only allowed to do things uh, if you have obeyed things. Yeah, but they, they would never actually do that. Right, Mr. Trudeau? Right? Oh, never, never, <laughs> never. You know, and again, really, it's important to bear that in mind. You know, you and I have talked about this many times in the past. And, and, and what I'm getting at here is that this isn't well-intended stuff that can go off the rails. This is a deliberately malignant stuff. This is being done for a reason. They want digital money, they want centralized digital money, and they want it for a very obvious reason, which is to control us and to make it essentially impossible for most people uh, to refuse to go along with it because the cost of that will be extreme. Well, and, and I wanted to bring you up to speed, too. You and I have talked about uh, Ammon Bundy's uh, saga mm-hmm. with, with the, the biggest health care provider in the state of Idaho, St. Luke's. That went to a jury last week. So this is a civil mm-hmm. case. The jury has awarded $52.5 million to this hospital, which which is yep. uh, claiming to be the victim because um, Ammon and another gentleman called them on a medical kidnapping. And I just think yep. whew, this this does not portend that we're headed somewhere good when healthcare is that intertwined with a, with a very corrupt government system. No, and how many people are going to be willing to take a stand knowing what's happened to Ammon, knowing that potentially they could be bankrupted, that... Uh, their ability to take care of their family, to keep a roof over their head and food on the table could be just destroyed at a stroke by some ruinous uh, financial punishment of that type. Yeah, it's it's definitely a a perfect case study in what lawfare looks like. And, uh, you know, I mean, essentially... You know, St. Luke's Healthcare is is asserting that uh, they will own Ammon Bundy till the end of his natural life. I mean, mm-hmm. didn't, didn't we do away with that uh, once upon a time? I, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Well, you know, I really, truly, obviously hope it does not come to this, but it's entirely possible that us dissidents may end up like Alexander Zolchenitsyn, of course, was a famous Russian dissident. He lost everything, and he spent 10 years in a prison in the Soviet gulag. Um, but he kept true to the truth and to his principles, and so... Even though uh, he had had everything taken away from him, they, the Soviet government, did not own him. And I think that that is a heartening and instructive lesson for all of us to take to heart. I remember one of his quotes being, once you have taken everything away from a man, he is free. And if you you think about it, suddenly there's no more leverage to be used against you. Exactly right. Well, and you know, at what, what, what is the price of your personal integrity, you know, of your self-worth, of your ability to look at yourself in the mirror and know that, that, you know, you didn't bend the knee to these people. I think that for me, the most frustrating thing is, is not, you know, seeing the corruption out in the open. I've been aware of it for a long time. It really doesn't surprise me. What's discouraging to me is how many people 
grasp for any reason, any straw. Please let me believe that the state is right. The corporation is right. The lawyers are right. You know, they, they just want to believe that the system is doing the right thing, even as, as they, you know, in this case, the jurors participate in, uh, in trying to destroy another person's life. Well, I think that's understandable because people, most people are so heavily invested in the system. They put all their eggs in that basket and it's unimaginable to them, or rather they don't want to imagine it, that, that they are now beholden to and chained to something that's evil and that indeed they are a part of it and that there is a cost for that. And that there is also a cost for uh, deciding, you know, I'm not going to be a part of that any longer. You know, it may be a heavy cost and they want to operate in their own bubble and feel uh, that all is well. Don't every, everybody wants to feel that all is well and nothing to worry about, right? Just like on the Titanic. It yep. doesn't change the fact that, that the Titanic is taken on water. Well, and it, and it raises the question, at least to me, what would it take to, to, to cause people to sit back and go, ooh, that can't be right? You know, if, if they're willing to accept well, this, how far would they be willing to go before they would actually draw the line and say, I can't be a part of that? Well, you know, it might take, and this is a very depressing thought. You remember uh, Yuri Bezmanov, the ex-KGB agent who defected? Yes, yep. You know, and he said they'll understand it when they feel the boot kicking them in the butt uh, uh, into the into the uh, yard of the, uh, the gulag. Wow. And yet in the meantime, they sit there with that self-assurance, that, oh, it would never happen to me. They just, they just haven't picked up on it. If it can happen to somebody else, it can, it can be done to you. It, well, nobody wants to think about it. And again, to defend people, it's because most people aren't psychopaths. You know, most people can't imagine that there are people out there like that who are predators. Here, here. All right. I want to shift to something a little more fun, a little more pleasant as, mm-hmm. we, as we round out this segment. Um, you brought back an amazing memory of uh, Ricardo Montalban and the yes. Chrysler Cordoba. Uh, talk to me about, uh, about how iconic this car was in the 70s. Oh, my gosh, sure. It was a touchstone chiefly because of the, the spokesman uh, that uh, Chrysler hired to do the commercials, which was the uh, uh, inimitable Ricardo Montalban, who was just a really smooth, elegant guy and, and just had a knack about him for, uh, you know, for smoothly talking about practically anything. But the part that I found really interesting when watching that commercial uh, from our point of view is that he talks about this new small Chrysler. That's how the <laughs> Cordoba was marketed. Now, I, I dug into it a little bit, and the Cordoba is 215 inches long. You know what's that long today? What's that? A Chevy Tahoe. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, look, the cars of that era, I, I tell my kids, if we still see one running around, I'm like, look, it's a land yacht. Right. Right. Exactly. And also, the other thing about it, too, is that here you had a rear-drive car with a V8 engine that was standard with two more V8s that were optional. Now, today, if you want to buy a car that has a V8, good luck. Even six-figure luxury cars like, uh, like the BMW 7 uh, don't have V8s anymore standard. They come with sixes standard. If you want the V8, you're going to be spending well over $100,000 to get one of these things. And by the way, these sedans which by current terminology are considered full-size, are still smaller than a 75 Chrysler Cordoba. Wow. And, and I, I have to ask, does anybody do rich Corinthian leather anymore? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that was proprietary. Uh, I think that came and went uh, with the Cordoba itself. Well, I, I loved the article, and again, I'm going to recommend this to, to our listeners. Uh, go to ericpetersautos.com, and, uh, and if, if you're old enough, 
you'll you'll have a very pleasant trip down memory lane. And um, I I really had forgotten, especially when I watched the commercial that you had linked of of uh, Ricardo Montalban, you know, hawking the Chrysler mm-hmm. Cordoba. Holy cow! What what, yeah, a, you know, what a time! And, and- and, you know, the other thing, too, that's interesting about going back and watching those old commercials, Ricardo doesn't say a word about safety. He talks about the styling of the car, how comfortable it is, uh, you know, how reassuring it is to drive it. All of those things that you never hear about anymore. Yeah. In fact, he focuses. It's, it's a very pleasurable car to own and drive. Mm-hmm. Who yep. knew that such a thing was possible? <laughs> Eric, great to visit with you as always. Uh, have a great week, and I look forward to catching up with you about this time next week. Good, O'Brien. Thanks as always. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to my sponsors who make this program possible. They include ClimbingUpward.com. That's my friend, Dr. John Pulver. Also, TMCPNation.com. That's my friend, John Harvey. LifesavingFood.com. Okay, I don't know anybody there by name, (laughs) but they're still my friends because they provide wonderful food storage. And, of course, MonticelloCollege.org. Hey, that's my friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks. I have a lot of friends. I'm not afraid to tell you that I love these people and I I appreciate them making this program possible on a daily basis. All right, let's jump back in here. Um, You know, libraries used to be among the safest places for children. In fact, it wasn't so long ago that, uh, you know, part of summer was, you know, mom would either drop the kids off at the library or tell the kids, yeah, ride your bikes to the library, go spend an afternoon discovering But if you've been paying attention to the news lately, you probably realize things are getting a little bit, uh, how can I say this, risky, especially now that the American Library Association is under the leadership of a professed Marxist lesbian. Her words, by the way, actually her daughter's words, and, 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 you know, I'm sorry to, to, you know, cast these kinds of aspersions out there, but I've just got this impression that the Marxists out there really don't have our best interests in mind. Now, because of this, some states are starting to distance themselves from the American Library Association. Case in point, here's a great article from uh, intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Kurt Malberg, who says, Local libraries have become a fierce battleground in the cultural revolution sweeping America. Probably not terribly surprising, right? Drag queen story hour, the promotion of pornographic materials in the children and teen sections have prompted parents around the nation to push back and for some families to withdraw entirely. In fact, he says last week we saw an entire state withdraw. This was the Montana State Library Commission voting to cut all ties with the American Library Association, the ALA, citing as its primary concern the national body's newly elected Marxist president. Voting five to one with one member abstaining, the commission approved a letter to be sent to the ALA stating our oath of office and resulting duty to the Constitution forbids association with an organization led by a Marxist. Now, it's the oldest and largest library association in the world with over 50,000 members. The ALA has been lurching leftward for decades. 
a fact no longer able to be disguised when, a, when it elected a self-described Marxist lesbian as its president last April. Well, beginning her role this month, Emily Drabinsky has since deleted the revealing tweet in which she congratulated herself on the appointment and advertised her radical politics. I just cannot believe that a Marxist lesbian who believes that collective power is possible to build and can be wielded for a better world is the president-elect of the ALA of at ALA Library, she boasted in the tweet, still accessible via the Wayback Machine. Sorry, ma'am, but the internet keeps receipts. I'm so excited for what we will do together. Solidarity. I'm just picturing her fist raised in the air. Yes. Okay, well, Montana Libraries Commissioner Tom Burnett read out Drabinsky's fateful, fateful tweet when he first called for a special session to discuss Montana Library's ties to the ALA. Now, it's a long way to fall for the ALA, whose first president was Justin Windsor, a cartographer, librarian, careful historian, and genealogist. Windsor was a student and writer of American history, and he proudly proclaimed being a descendant of Mayflower passengers. These days, the ALA is apparently more interested in a radical queer in, in radical queer politics. The National Library Body has given <clears throat> awards and accolades to GLSEN, formerly the Gay Lesbian Straight Education Network, which has promoted LGBT propaganda in schools nationwide. In campaigning for the role of ALA president, Emily Drabinsky made no secret of her Marxist platform in a blurb she has also since wiped from the Internet. Quote, so many of us find ourselves at the ends of our worlds. The consequences of decades of unchecked climate change, class war, white supremacy, and imperialism have led us here. If we want a world that includes public goods like the library, we must organize our collective power and wield it. Dang, she really didn't hold back, did she? Or, to quote uh, Karl Marx himself, all that uh, is solid melts into air and workers of the world unite. Now, Kurt Marlberg writes, Drabinsky has openly promoted pornographic books, including Gender Queer, which includes sexually explicit illustrations, and Flamer, which depicts sex acts between teen boys. The latter, Drabinsky tweeted about on July 4th of this year. Her tweet talking about, Spent my morning with Mike Carrado's Flamer, a beautiful, quiet, essential story. Okay. Well, while rainbow activists like Durbinsky have claimed they're victims of a nationwide conservative book-banning campaign, the ALA has had no qualms in trying to prevent book readings at its libraries by Christian children's authors like Kirk Cameron. Book-banning for me, but not for thee. Montana's the first state to quit the ALA, but not the first association to jump ship. The Campbell County Public Library Board, based in Gillette, Wyoming, cut ties with the ALA in October 2022 and also divorced itself from the Wyoming Library Association, which has retained ALA membership. Which state is next to leave the Library Association? Well, that's anybody's guess. Perhaps this fight for better libraries will soon be coming to a state near you. I know in my uh, home state of Idaho, it's something that is definitely being discussed. And of course, you know, the the... I guess the prevailing wisdom is, well, that's only because they just want to control people. They want to indoctrinate children, these parents, as opposed to whom? These Marxists indoctrinating our children? Because really, that's where the rub is, or at least that's that's where it seems to, to be. They're angry that they're being called out on trying to indoctrinate children, either into perverse behavior or into just flat-out Marxist ideology. Only we know what's best for your children. I know it's, it's sad. 
I think uh, the, the days when you could just turn your kid loose in the library and be sure that, hey, you know what, they're not going to encounter anything bad there. Well, maybe a homeless person trying to, you know, stay out of the heat. But even that may not necessarily be a bad thing. But poison for their minds, poison for their souls, yeah, that's, that's probably where I would draw the line as well. Thankfully, some of us have spent our lives amassing libraries of our own. And even though screens tend to dominate our society, it's not a bad idea to uh, have some books on hand. And if you teach a kid to love how to read and to enjoy sitting down with a good book, you have given them a lifelong gift that will pay dividends for many, many generations. Thus endeth my sermon. All right, another article I'm going to point you toward. This is from J.D. Tusil from Reason.com. I like this because it kind of dovetails nicely with the library issue. Right now, we're seeing a lot of parents and teachers unions at odd. At any time you see these two groups at odds, there's going to be plenty of controversy. Maybe you've noticed. Perhaps you've participated. But uh, what J.D. Tusil is talking about is with parent and teacher groups at odds, this may be the time where school choice is an idea whose time has arrived. He says, breaking unions' grip on schools benefits everybody who wants to guide their kids' education. And I I don't want to make you feel guilty, okay? If you're one of those parents who kind of struggles with, well, I need my kid in school because I've got work that I have to do to support my family, and heaven knows that's not getting any easier or cheaper. But I think parents who are taking that long-term view and really weighing out, okay, how important is it that my child... Uh, not be brainwashed or mind laundered, however you want to put it. Sometimes I think that uh, parents are facing a very difficult and sometimes expensive decision to pull their kids out of school and to to school them themselves. I know there there was a time when homeschooling was really frowned upon. I remember when my wife and I were homeschooling our kids early on and and, you know, I know it was well-meaning, you know, on the part of relatives, but, you know, everybody seemed to have, well, uh, what, what about their social development? Are they going to be socialized? Uh, social, social, social. By the way, we're going to talk about the word socialism here in a few minutes in our article of the day. And uh, not, all, not all forms of socialization are necessarily a good thing. But when you reach the point where you have activism actively coming after your kids... And I'm sorry, but there are teachers who are very bold. If you don't believe me, I would encourage you, jump onto libs of TikTok. You can check them out on, well, what used to be Twitter. Now it's called X. Anyway, that that happened rather quickly yesterday. But uh, libs of TikTok, they don't go into any commentary. There's no narrator telling you, now this is what you must think about what you're hearing or seeing. They just let these, uh, these TikTok video uploaders speak in their own voice, in their own words. That's all they do. They share the videos, and you would be shocked at the number of activist teachers who are out there bragging. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do this without parents' knowledge, or I do this on the sly. I make sure that these kids know that they can come to me and that I will never, ever rat them out to their parents. I will keep it a secret between us because, you know, adults and kids keeping secrets, particularly about sexual matters, <laughs> well, that's that's just good, healthy <laughs> education, right? Yeah. Not exactly. So if you are a parent or a grandparent, you're concerned about what the kids are facing in school, look, you're right to be concerned. You probably have a tough decision to make. And I hope you'll take that long-term view 
in making that kind of decision. It might involve some sacrifice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, once again, welcome back to the show. And again, thank you so much for tuning in and uh, giving this program a chance. I don't feel like I knock it out of the park every day, but I will tell you, most days, because I, I take what I do somewhat seriously, and by that I mean, I, look, hopefully this doesn't get too weird for you, but, um, you know, I, I actively, I pray every time I, I sit down to, to write my show notes, every time I sit down to produce a show, I ask God to help me find the kinds of topics and the kind of uh, the kind of delivery of this information that will not just help people be informed because I don't want to just be inf- informing you in a way that leaves you, you know, fearful or angry or upset and anxious that oh my gosh, it's even worse than we thought. But I want you to be informed in such a way that you realize, okay, we're facing reality as it is. This is the world, not as we wish it were, but as it is. And here's what we can do about it. We are not powerless. We are not victims. We are not, you know, uh, totally uh, lacking any responsibility for our circumstances. We have choices to make. Sometimes they're not the easiest choices. But we are far from just, you know, helplessly being carried on a current that we have no control over. And I, I take it one step further. I really believe that, you know, there there is a great need for people to stand up and shine a light into the darkness. I believe you're one of those people. And I want to encourage you to to find the strength, find the courage, find the backbone to stand up and do it. All right. Two things I want to share with you real quick here. Uh, This was a a tweet that I ran across yesterday that uh, just was so good. It it encapsulates so much of what uh, I think a lot of us have been experiencing and feeling over the last three years. This is from a, a Twitter individual who goes by Santa Cruz Mountain Goat. And the tweet says, many people want to move on from COVID. And I get it. I do too. The thing is, we can't. There's no going back. We learned some things about ordinary people and we must discuss it. Some people were scared and some people were not. Those who were scared were willing to do terrible things to those who were not. Ordinary people called for the health insurance of other ordinary people to be canceled. Ordinary people silenced some of the most highly trained and qualified physicians in the world and other ordinary people championed, championed rather the censorship. Ordinary people were glad other ordinary people could not eat inside with them. Ordinary people eagerly explained to other ordinary people that their child would not be receiving a life-saving transplant due to their vaccination status. Ordinary people cheered as doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists, radiologists, and many other healthcare workers were fired when they were called heroes months before. Ordinary people cheered as blue-collar state employees were fired when they were called essential months before. Ordinary people were angry when the Supreme Court stepped in and saved the jobs of many unvaccinated workers in the private sector. Ordinary people shunned family members and unfriended lifelong friends. Ordinary people were uninvited from trips and kicked out of groups, clubs, and communities. Ordinary people kept ordinary student-athletes from competing due to vaccination status. Probably the worst of all, ordinary people were coerced into injecting themselves with an unknown substance that they didn't want, 
all under false pretenses, many of which had terrible or deadly reactions. The list goes on and on, and so do the crimes against humanity. Ordinary people became monsters, all because of fear. And here Santa Cruz Mountain Goat says, Are you ordinary? Do you live in fear? Did you become a monster? Look, I have to agree. That was, by far, the most disturbing aspect. I expect the power seekers and opportunists to to try to take advantage wherever they can. But absolutely, the most disheartening part of the whole pandemic and the mandates and everything that followed was what we learned about ordinary people acting out of fear. If you ever questioned, well, how did it get so bad in Nazi Germany or in Maoist China or in, you know, Bolshevik Russia? Now you know. We're not immune. This is, this is part of human nature. And, and I share this with you not to make you feel guilty if you were one of those ordinary people who cheered on the mandates and, you know, cussed the maskless and the unvaccinated. I'm just begging you, learn from this experience. And it's okay. You'll find me to be very forgiving if, if people are willing to say, okay, I got that wrong. I'm not asking you that you abase yourself before me. Kiss my foot, you know. Let me rub your nose in it. I'm just saying learn from it and don't embrace it the next time someone tries to manipulate your fear into persecuting the people around you. All right. Having said that, I want to share with you this article of the day, or at least excerpts of this article of the day. This is the essential ethic of socialism. I know we hear that word a lot. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's spoken with distaste, depending on who's saying it. Some people say it with reverence. But if you're looking for a clear understanding of the word, Adam Martin, writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has, I think, a very good workable definition. That's socialism, cry those on the right when they see government spending that they don't like. Tap water safe to drink because of socialism, cry those on the left in response to those on the right. He says the term socialism has long been a usefully ambiguous word for people across the political spectrum to rally around without having to think too hard. Well, he says this essay will finally put an end to that practice. I kid. He says my ambitions are more humble to bring for those who care to think just a bit of clarity to what sorts of policies really do embody the socialist ethos. They're out there, but they probably aren't the policies you're thinking of. Two points of clarification, he says. First, I take it as a given that socialism comes in degrees. Full-blown central planning is probably impossible, but some regimes come closer than others to attempting it. China is less socialist today than it was during the Great Leap Forward. Second, by socialist ethics, he says, I do not mean socialist aspirations, neither egality or fraternity. These are the guiding values that many socialists seek to to realize. By the way, you also recognize those were two of the major tenets of the French Revolution. Just just saying. Rather, he says, I want to focus on the institutional means that socialists propose to achieve them. Institutions are rules that lay out certain ethical scripts, what you may do, what you must do, and what you are permitted to do. Views that count as a socialist, as socialists rather, share an ethical presumption that's largely divorced from their aspirational ideals. So, what socialism must do is what he covers first. What do Leninist planning, market socialism, anarcho-syndicalism, and other forms of self-designated socialism mostly have in common? Well, he says the most common definition and a useful starting point is common ownership of the means of production. 
So he goes into this by by asking, what is the functional nature of a socialist economy? And he goes into some pretty good detail here. Now, I'm skipping ahead because I'm going to ask you to to check this article out on, on your own. I won't have time to read the whole thing, but there's another aspect here, and that is Mother, or Mother Russia, may I? This aspect is where you must ask for permission to serve other people. He says, this is what I take to be the core ethic of socialism. When Jacobin writers attack private charity, we should take them at their word. Now, he says, we serve others for many reasons in both capitalist and socialist regimes. One socialist factory worker aims to help his fellow working man. Another just wants to avoid punishment from his supervisor. One entrepreneur aims to make her customers happy. Another does it just for the money. Both capitalism and socialism assume a division of labor and thus service to others as an important part of how individuals spend their time and allow for a wide variety of motivations to drive those decisions. But the difference is this. In a capitalist regime, however selfish I may be, I need not ask permission to serve my fellow humans in a novel way. He says, in a socialist regime, I must seek the permission of others, whether state officials or one's fellow workers, before I serve them in a novel way. That's an interesting distinction. And finally, he comes to, please, sir, can I serve some more? Healthcare professionals would like to make services available in rural areas. Sorry, they need a certificate of need. Individuals from various walks of life would like to make caskets or braid hair or create floral arrangements. Sorry, they all need licenses. A developer would like to build multifamily affordable housing. Sorry, there's a zoning rule against that. Want to feed the homeless? Make sure to clear it with your city's health inspectors first. That's socialism. Or more precisely, the socialist ethic at work. I think his point here is beautifully stated when he says human beings find our highest calling in serving one another, whether through family and friendship, through charity and solidarity, even through commerce. But when you hear calls to prohibit forms of service, you are justified in responding, that's socialism. I really like the definition that my friend Gary used to have of socialism, and I think he probably still does. He's a smart guy. He uh, talked about how basically it's the idea that someone else knows better than you do. Or maybe a small clique of someone else's know better than everybody else. And therefore, it's their permission we must obtain if we wish to do anything. Yeah, that kind of that kind of collectivism doesn't do much in terms of uh, meeting the needs of individuals or societies. So choose wisely what you embrace. This is The Brian Hyde Show.